If you have your Bibles, you want to turn to Acts 15. Or in Acts 15, 1 to 29, if you are doing the new city catechism with your kids or grandkids, it's question 10. And it's really the fourth and fifth commandments of the Decalogue. The fourth commandment is to keep the Sabbath holy. For us to set aside a day each week to really focus on our relationship with the Lord. And the fifth commandment is like every parent's favorite. Honor thy father and mother. Or in my house, honor thy popo and nana. And father and mother. I got a lot of these kids and grandkids now. We all love those commands, don't we? And may we live them out. Let's go ahead and pray and ask God to guide our time. Father God, today we look at the Jerusalem Council. In some ways, it feels like the pivotal moment in the early church, maybe the most famous text in the book of Acts outside of Acts 2. And so we pray, Father, that we would rightly divide it, treat it well, learn from it, and that you would guide us through it, that we might not be hearers of the word only, but truly doers as well. Guide our time, we ask, in the name of Christ. Amen. I would guess that a number of you have seen the Steven Spielberg movie, Saving Private Ryan. If you have, you remember that Tom Hanks plays a captain, Captain Miller. And Captain Miller, with a group of men, had been given a most unusual assignment. It comes from the Pentagon. The Pentagon have assigned Captain Miller and his band to find Private Ryan. Apparently, a mother in the United States had four sons. The first three have died during World War II. They don't want her fourth son to die. And so they want to bring Private Ryan back to the United States safely. And so Captain Miller and a small group have been assigned, go find Private Ryan. Now that seems like it ought to be an easy task. But we know that the setting is Normandy. The Allies have come onto the French beaches, a half a dozen beaches, and they're under withering machine gun fire. There are machine gun nests all over the beach, and they're under fire. And because of this, many of the soldiers have been split from the groups that they're a part of. They're not in the right geographic region. They're not fighting alongside the men they have trained with. It is a mess. And so Private Ryan, like many, have made his way into the mainland of France and he is not with the right group. He's not where he's supposed to be. So finding Private Ryan is a bit of a task. And to make matters worse, Captain Miller and his small group come under fire. Some of them die. And they're a little bitter about this. They're dying in order to find Private Ryan, they do not know, in order to bring him back to the States, because that's the Pentagon's command. And so eventually they find Private Ryan. And Private Ryan is with a group that's strategically holding a bridge that the Allies need. It's an important bridge. 
And now Captain Miller has a problem. The Pentagon has said that he ought to exit with his group and with Private Ryan. But if they leave, the advancing Wehrmacht, the, the German army, will take this strategic bridge. But if they stay, they're disobeying the Pentagon. And what happens if Captain, or excuse me, Private Ryan catches a bullet? And so they have this dilemma. And Captain Miller decides they're going to stay. They're going to do both. They're going to hold the bridge for the Allies. And somehow they're going to make sure that Private Ryan doesn't catch a bullet. Now, if you remember the end of the movie, they hold the bridge. And pretty much all of Captain Miller's band are killed. And Captain Miller has caught a bullet. And he grabs hold of Private Ryan just as he's about to die. And he says, earn this, earn this, and he dies. The last scene of the movie is many years later where we have a now senior citizen, Private Ryan. He's in a cemetery in Normandy, that's U.S. territory. And he's standing in front of Captain Miller's tombstone. And he's wondering, has he earned this? Has he lived a life that was worthy of the lives that were spent on his behalf? Has he earned this? And I would submit that some in the church have the same philosophy when it comes to salvation. Earn this, earn salvation, somehow prove oneself before a holy, holy, holy God somehow earn this right to come into the presence of the Lord. In contrast, when Jesus was on the cross paying the penalty of our sin, which is death, and then conquering death and rising again, just before his death, John 19, 30, he cried out, to tell us die, it is finished. It's complete. It is done. Sola fide, faith alone. Sola gratia, in grace alone. Solus Christus, in Christ alone. No earned this. Christ earned it for us. By faith, believe in Christ. By faith, accept Christ. What he did on the cross is the payment of our sin. His death for us. His resurrection is evidence of life after the grave. Believe in Christ. And then embrace Romans 8.1. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And yet we live in a day and age. We live in a land that is grace plus always trying to add to the work of Christ. It's an age-old problem, and it's in today's text. I want to pick up in Acts 15. Allow me to read verses 1 to 6. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, historically, in the 20th century, actually, we called these people Judaizers. They actually weren't called that for the 1900 years that preceded it. But the Judaizers are individuals who came from Judea. They were Jews. 
And they said, grace plus. Grace plus circumcision, grace plus the law, grace plus the kosher kitchen. Your effort and God's grace together will equal salvation. It's an age old problem. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, lay leaders who wanted to go back to the law, they rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses, the 613 Levitical laws. Matthew 5, 17 says, Jesus fulfilled those laws for us on our behalf because as the book of Galatians teaches, why do we have the law? We have the law as a taskmaster. The law was given that we might know we can't keep it. And by knowing that we can't keep it, we know we need a savior. The law was given always to point to Christ. No one, Old Testament, New Testament, has been saved without believing in the Redeemer Christ. They look forward to Christ, we look back on Christ because we can't keep the law. And so Christ, Matthew 5, 17, fulfilled it for us that we are no longer under the burden of the law. Verse six, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. It's an age old problem. Grace plus, grace plus works, grace plus baptism. Grace plus having the right Bible version. Grace plus being in the right church, being in the right denomination. Grace plus, and we add to what God has given us, and grace means unmerited favor. What we cannot earn is grace. So it's oxymoronic to say grace plus, because grace is what we cannot do for ourselves and what has been done for us. But here we have this group. We call them Judaizers. They come down from Judea. (coughs) And essentially they say this. If you come to Christ, that's great. It's a good start. But you got to obey the law of Moses. If you're a male, you should have been circumcised on the eighth day. If not, we need to take care of that. Because that is the sign of the covenant people. And The Messiah is Jewish. He's a covenant person. And if you expect the Messiah, the covenant keeper, to save you, you need to keep the covenant of which he is king. And so the reasoning went. And when you start going grace plus, you say goodbye to grace and hello to legalism. And so a great debate broke out in Jerusalem. All the apostles and elders were there and they're going to rule on this grace issue. Let me pick up in verses seven to 11. And after there had been much debate, that's the second time we've been told of debate. Peter stood up. He said to them, brothers, 
You know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their heart by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the new disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? What's that yoke? The law. But we believe that we have been saved. How? Through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. A lot of debate ensues, and then finally Peter rises. I love this. This is the maturity of someone who's growing in Christ. The early Peter would have been the first to speak. The early Peter would have exchanged feet, right? But he waits till everybody discuss. We're told twice there's great debate. And then Peter speaks. I love this verse. My mom used to point it out to my sisters. Proverbs 17, 28. Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is deemed intelligent. This would be a secret between you and me. Don't tell my mom I said that. Nor my sisters. They'll come after me. But Peter, Peter used to speak first and now he waits. And when he arises, he tells the account that we've already learned in Acts chapter 10. And in Acts chapter 10, you remember what happens. It's noon. Peter is hungry. He's gone up on the rooftop, which is kind of like the porch. Someone is down below. They're providing lunch. They're making lunch. And Peter falls into a dream. He has a trance. And the trance is from God. And they lower the sheet before him. And it's filled with all sorts of food. But all the food is unkosher. And the voice says to Peter, rise up, kill, and eat. And you remember what Peter says, by no means, Lord. It's ridiculous. You don't say, by no means, Lord. If he's Lord, you say yes. You don't say, by no means. By no means, Lord, I have never eaten what is unkosher. And you remember what God says, what God has called clean, do not call unclean. And he has the vision several times. And the vision really isn't about food. It's about the fact that God is going to send Peter to Caesarea Maritima, a city built in 10 BC by Herod the Great, a Roman city filled with idolatry. The markings all along the city are idols. There is a temple to Jupiter in this city. And yet God has said, go into the city, Find a centurion named Cornelius and share the gospel. And Peter goes into the city, shares the gospel. And Cornelius and his family come to Christ and they are not circumcised. And yet they are part of the family of God. And the point is this. We live in an age of grace. And as we live in an age of grace, what right do we have to abandon grace and start adding things outside of scripture to the qualifications of what would make us right before God. And yet that's what's going on in the Jerusalem council. Grace plus. And it happens all the time. I just came from traditions. Same illustration. I'll just flip it around for you all. 
We all have worship preferences, don't we? We all have worship preferences. The problem isn't our preferences, it's our demanding or demeaning someone else's worship preference. The Bible actually says yes to all sorts of worship. Does it say yes to praise worship? It does. You think about the Hillel, which is a word, a Hebrew word that means praise, the Hillel, Psalm, Psalm 134, all the way to 150. They're all praise songs. Sometimes we sing the same words over and over again. I don't actually like that. I know you do. I don't. If we sing it twice, I got it. I got it. Some of you need a few more times. I just need twice. That's what I need. But every time I get judgmental, I think of Psalm 136. And Psalm 136 has God saying, his steadfast love endures forever 26 times. We talk about 711 songs, you know, seven words sung 11 times. This is a six word sung 26 times. And so if I'm going to be judgmental, I've got to remember Psalm 136. Or what about Revelation 4, 8, where we have the four living creatures saying something holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And how often do they say it? Forever and ever and ever. They never stop saying it. And I get a little bit judgmental after we do something twice. That's kind of arrogant on my part. But then we have hymns. Colossians 1, 15 to 20 is the Christ hymn. It's actually one of three times that Paul takes early music and puts it into the text. Philippians 2, 5 to 11, and then Romans 11, 33 to 36. All three of those passages are actually songs that were sung in the early church that Paul incorporated into scripture guided by the Holy Spirit. And Colossians 1, 15 to 20 is a hymn. Psalm 119, the longest psalm in the Psalter, is a hymn. And so the Bible has both. And the issue is not to demean one another. It's to worship God best with our preferences, but in grace. We're recipients of grace, and we ought to extend grace to others rather than saying the most godly people worship God this way. And then we add something insignificant. What about dancing? That's divided more than a few churches, right? And yet in 2 Samuel chapter 6, we have David dancing mightily before the Lord, and God is pleased. And what about a husband and wife who dances together? What would be wrong with that? Or, or a young couple who dances with one another, but they do so with modesty. What would be wrong with that? Or how we dress. In some cultures, you would dress actually not wearing your most expensive clothes, but very, very modest clothes that are actually clothes that make you humble because you want to be humble before the Lord. And in other cultures, you wear your finest. And the Bible really doesn't address the issue. We're going into December. And we put Christmas trees up in this church. Like, I think we have 14 or 16 of them. And if you donate one, we'll have 15 to 17, and we'll put that one up too. 
I like Christmas trees, and so we put them up. It's a non-issue, or it ought to be. Or how about alcohol? That certainly divides churches. Some Christ followers choose not to drink alcohol. That would be Betty Ann and I. Two reasons, really. I thought years ago it would be wise in what I did not to drink alcohol, but also I've interacted with so many people who have shipwrecked their marriages and families that I just choose not to. But that's not what the Bible teaches. Abstinence is not the biblical last word on alcohol. Moderation, never getting drunk, never getting bothered. That's the biblical message, right? Proverbs 5, 18, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. Proverbs 20, verse 1, wine is a mocker and beer is a brawler. Those who are led astray by them are unwise. So the point is this, we live in an age of grace. And we need to learn to extend grace rather than start adding things that if you're really a God-fearing Christian, you will do this, you won't do that. There are things beyond what scripture actually says. And that's what's going on in the Jerusalem council. Living in an age of grace requires you and I to live out grace. Peter's example of Cornelius was powerful. And then Paul and Barnabas speak. We don't know what they said. And then we have James. So let me pick up again in the text. This time I want to read verses 20 or 12 to 21. Verse 12. And all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon has relented how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known known from of old. Therefore, my judgment, after quoting Amos, therefore, my judgment, says James, is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but we should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So after we have an update by Paul and Barnabas, which isn't given to us, then James rises. I kind of picture silence at that moment. James is the head of the Jerusalem council. He's the head of the Jerusalem church. He's the half-brother of Jesus Christ. He is, for the Jews, certainly the most important person outside of Christ at this moment. Not the Gentiles, but for the Jews. And so I think that the Pharisees mentioned in verse five are really excited that James is going to talk. He's called James the Just. He was nicknamed Old Camel Knees because he has calluses on his knees because he's always on his knees praying on behalf of the congregation. They love James. And I think the Pharisees think that James is gonna take their side. 
And I love what James does. He doesn't take their side, but he doesn't go at them either. First, he refers to Peter, but he doesn't call him Peter. He doesn't even call him Simon. He calls him Simeon. The most Jewish name possible for Peter is the one that he calls because he wants to bring in the Jews. He wants them to listen. He wants to build bridges. The next thing he does is he quotes in verses 15 and 16, the book of Amos. The book of Amos is a book of judgment. If you're going to talk to legalists, you like the books of judgment, right? So he finds a book of judgment, and then he quotes almost the only two verses in the book of Amos that aren't about judgment. And what are they about? They're about a remnant of David, the Jews, who still believe in Christ, and the gospel going out to the Gentiles, and not one mention of circumcision. So he throws the Jews a branch. He has their attention. Paul wouldn't. He's the, he's the apostle to Gentiles. Peter wouldn't because let's be honest, he went to see Cornelius. Barnabas wouldn't because he's always with Paul with the Gentiles. But James the just stays in the Jerusalem church, pastors the Jerusalem church. And he starts out by using Simeon and Amos. And he draws them in. And then he shows from the Old Testament how God always intended for the Gentile world to come to Christ and that salvation is not grace plus. It's just grace. And there is no circumcision. And then James seems to ruin it all, doesn't he? I mean, then he, he adds some things. Come on, James, you had us. And then you ruin it. He gives them three rules. Come on, James. The first rule, abstain from anything offered to idols. Abstain from idolatry. Really what he's doing is, is he's reciting the second command of the Decalogue, have no other God beside thee. Why? Because he knows where the Gentiles have come from. The Gentiles, if they're Romans, have had a Roman pantheon. If they're Greeks, they had a Greek pantheon. And what you do is when you have a new God, you simply add the new God to your pantheon. And so he says, no, 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 you can't do that. One God, three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God, get rid of the pantheon. So that's a rule. You got to keep it. Second, he says, if you really belong to God, you really belong to God. And if you really belong to God, it's not just your mind, it's your body. Abstain from immorality. It's an act of worship to the Lord. Because he was living in a day and age, much like America, where we think we have the right to do with our body as we want. And we forget that God creates us, God sustains us, and God creates the rules. And intimacy is only in a husband-wife marriage relationship. And so he adds rule number two. And then he goes and ruins it with number three. We understand one and two, but three, come on, James. What does he say? Abstain from meat that is strangled with blood in it. Oh, come on, James. You took us all the way back to the law. You just rescued us from the law. And now we're going back to the law. Why, James? And he answers in verse 21. Let me read it again. For from ancient generations... 
Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogue. This is what James is saying. He's saying, you know, there are Jews in every city and we want Jews to come to Christ. There's only a remnant. Amos told us there's just a small remnant of the family of David, but we want the root of Jesse, Isaiah 11, to be more than a root. We want the olive branch to grow. And in order to witness to these individuals, won't you give up a little bit of your freedom? A little bit of the license that God has given you not to offend the Jews that they might come to Christ? Isn't that very Pauline? Think of 1 Corinthians chapter 9. They'll put 19 to 21. I'm actually going to read through 22. It says this. For though I am free from all, I've made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, that is Jews, I become as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. This means when you go out to lunch with a Jew at 2510, you don't order medium rare with bacon on the top. You don't do it because that will offend. And we want to be better than that. We live in an age of grace. We want to extend grace. Verse 21. To those outside the law, the Gentiles, I become as one outside the law. Oh baby, I get double bacon. Not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law to the weak, to those who have scruples. To the weak I become weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. He says the same thing in Galatians 5, 13. For you are called to freedom, brothers, sisters, Christ followers. You are called to freedom. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. This is the bottom line. They're going to get together. They're going to write a letter. Most of the letter is what James has said. And what James has said is this. You don't earn this. You can't earn salvation. Salvation is by grace. It's a free gift. Christ did it all. He paid the penalty of our sin, which is death. He conquered death, rose again. He offers eternal life if we believe in him. And if you believe in Christ then you're going to evidence it by having one God, three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. You bow to one God, no other. You're going to evidence this by how you live your life, how you use your body. Salvation is not just mind. It's mind, soul, body. How we live is for the Lord. And you're going to evidence grace by not holding on to all your freedoms. You think of Romans 14 and 15. In Romans 14 and 15, we have the weak. And the weak are those that add things to the biblical text. The weak have extra scruples. The weak make all sorts of extra biblical rules. And they're called weak. We think of them as as strong, right? They're saying no to this and no to that. And 
and they're so angry about everything. The Bible calls them weak. The Bible says the strong, they're the ones that don't add anything to Scripture. They're the ones that can eat bacon, but if they're around a Jew, they're not going to because they're going to hold their freedom tightly and they're not going to embarrass someone who's weak. And so the letter that goes out says, live out grace because you've been given grace. And living out grace is worshiping one God. Living out grace is using your body only in ways that God desires and God designed. And living out grace is sometimes holding back your freedoms for the sake of the weak. We've been recipients of grace and we need to live out grace before others. Let's pray. Father God, a, a very familiar passage to us, a very familiar text and such a helpful one in every age. Father, if there's somebody here that does not know Jesus as Savior, may today be the day they stop trying to earn. And as we all must, by faith, say, I, I accept what you did, Jesus. Your death is a payment of my sin. Your resurrection is evidence after the grave. Come into my heart. Be my Savior. Be my Lord. And for those of us who have received grace, may we be peddlers of grace, peddlers of the gospel, and peddlers of how the gospel is lived out, not with judgment and arrogance, but rather with joy. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen.